The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie As you go home this evening, you're contemplating what you're going to have for your tea and this next topic is going to make you feel a little bit bad if you crack open a can of Coke or have some kind of fruit juice with it. Uh, The WHO's revealed that we're piling on the pounds. We're going to be the most obese country in Europe by 2030. That has led to a call for action and the call for action appears to be taking the form of a sugar tax and the government looks set to press ahead with it. But we're hearing today that the sugar tax isn't going to solve anything. It's a populist solution, says the Irish Beverage Council, that isn't supported by any evidence. So would a sugar tax tackle the problem the right way or is it just an old revenue-raising measure? Nutritionist and personal trainer Dan Sweeney is with me here in the Cork Opera House studio. Dan, you're very welcome to The Right Hook. Thank you, how are you? I'd love the way they send somebody in who's a personal trainer who looks as if they've never drank a can of Coke in their life to make me feel guilty. Um, do you indulge in sugary drinks? Um, no, I, I suppose... It's that bit easier for me because I've never really taken to them. I've never liked having them, so it's not like I have to stay away from them, you know. Um, were they banned in your house when you were growing no, up? No, I like, I suppose it's... My mum was very good with our food and that she let us maybe have what we wanted and we made better choices, you know. So it was never it was never a thing that it was banned. I just, any time I had them, I never, I was never really interested in them, you know. So I was never hooked on them. You must have known, though, from your peers going out with everybody else, uh, your friends and everything, that they were all around you, but in a different way. I mean, I, I don't know what age you are. You look like a man in your 20s, but presumably when you were younger, it wasn't such a big deal. Nowadays, you mm. know, you walk around to one of the supermarkets around the corner from us here, you, you get hit by walls of offers and yeah, of, of uh, in many ways cheaper than water. Yeah, it is It is kind of crazy at the moment. And you hit the nail head and where you said that junk food is getting a lot cheaper than the healthier food. I know uh, Tesco, maybe a few years back, start was the first supermarket to take away junk foods from the tills. But now, if you actually walk into a Tesco, you're, you're hit as soon as you walk in the door with the cheap, maybe donuts and um, pancakes and cookies, you know, so you're hit immediately as, as soon as you walk in the door. So it's starting to get closer to you as you come in the door. And I, I suppose the reason they're there is because they're probably either loss leaders, which means they're, they're able to mm-hmm. sell them at a discount, or they're selling them, which means that the second you walk through the door, you get the smell of the donut, you get uh, whatever fresh baked bread that might be good for you, it hits you yeah. and makes you want it. I mean, exactly. there's a psychology behind supermarkets. Yeah. They're, well. definitely, they're definitely selling them because just this morning I was in Tesco in Wilton at half a six, 6.30, and the shelves were, as soon as you go in, they have, like I said, you know, the cookies and the pancakes, and the shelves were full. And I know if I go in there this evening, they'll be empty, you know, and there was hundreds upon hundreds of them. But it's easy to, to pick as you're walking past. You know, if you have a basket with you, it's two euro for a packet of cookies, it's easy to throw in. Or if you have kids with you, they're just going to drag at you, and it's easy to throw them in. And the funny thing is, and, and look, Tesco um, allow people to buy these things. They don't make them buy them, but mm-hmm. they allow them to buy them. I'm guessing the cookies and the pancakes and all that wouldn't be affected by the sugar tax at all because the sugar tax is pretty narrow in targeting fizzy drinks. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know the reasoning behind that I don't know exactly why they're just targeting fizzy, fizzy drinks themselves when there's a lot of other foods that would be higher in sugar than, than the fizzy drinks. Um, when we heard this from the Irish Beverage Council this morning, the first thing I thought of was, hang on a second, mm. this is the industry <laughs> that produces the drinks who are telling us the sugar tax won't work. And, and, and the little inner journalist in me cried foul saying, look, mm. they've a vested interest here. Yeah. So therefore, we should take what they say with a pinch of sugar, if I yeah, can change exactly. the phrase. 
But you think there's more to it. You think that they may, despite their vested interest, have a point. Yeah, like I suppose you hit the nail on the head again where you said that the Irish uh, Beverage, Beverage Council, they represent companies that sell sugary drinks in Ireland. So they're going to have an agenda going into this report. They're not exactly going to come back and say that sugar tax is amazing. Um, but having said that, as of yet, there has not been an example of where a sugar tax has worked in reducing obesity. It failed in Denmark and in Mexico, a, sugary, a sugar tax prompted a fall in the consumption of fizzy drinks in the first years implemented, but since the levels have been rising again. So uh, why? I mean, do we, has anyone tried to figure out why once they introduced the, the sugar tax it didn't mm. work? Or, or maybe did the industry get involved and perhaps change the law? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's it's hard to say. I know in, in Denmark, the reason they stopped doing it was because they said a lot of people were actually going over their borders into places like Germany and they were they were buying their foods from there and bringing it back, you know. So it's hard to say. Yeah, but I mean, we live on an island. Admittedly, mm. if you're in the north, you might. if you're living in Louth, you might go across to Newry to buy your bottles. You're not going to travel from Cork to Newry just to get your sugar fix. So the benefit mm. would be more significant here. I yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I totally agree. But... I don't know, it just ha- it hasn't seemed to work in other countries and why would it work here, you know? I know they stated today that if you added a 10 cent tax on soda, um, it would increase household annual grocery bills by 60 euro, you know? And I know they're trying to scare people, but... Well, you would, but at the same time, you yeah. might buy less of it. That's the point. It's, it's, it's a tax to moderate behaviour as exactly, opposed to but encourage purchases. If it does increase the, the price of your annual grocery bill, then... If the money is used for the right things, I don't think you'd mind. If if you're if you're spending an extra sixty euro every year, and that money, every single cent, was going towards maybe giving education to kids in schools, I don't think many people would would argue with the sixty euro they actually uh, spent. We'd be talking about how kids behave during the summer holidays a little bit later on in the program with okay. Ray Silk, and and you know we would be naive to think that sugar is at the nub of all of this. There is a bigger problem in terms of obesity, mm-hmm. and it's inactivity. It's sitting on our backside. Exactly. Yeah. Um, a lot of kids now they will stay at home and they'll play they'll play computer games and gone are the days where people will go out and they'll play games outside in their their field. It's I think it's all come from the social media area where where I'm only twenty seven um, and in the space of say maybe the last six seven years outside my my home there's a massive green and no one no one plays on it anymore you know so I think since social media has come in it makes it a lot easier for people to contact each other through through these social is, media is platforms. Weird, you know you've just hit your you, you've hit it there that. We have these parks. I mean, where I grew up, there was a park, green space directly opposite, that would have always been full of kids. Mm-hmm. They're not there anymore. Yeah, I know. Why? Why? Where are they? I just think it's it's easier for kids just to sit at home and they're just they're comfortable position and they're just maybe texting each other on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is. It's just easy for them. You know, I can remember like like I said, I'm only twenty seven, and, and maybe seven years ago, you'd you would have to call to your friends. You know, like. And if they weren't there, you didn't have a clue where they were. Whereas now, you know exactly where they are, where they are any time. 53106 is the number for your text messages. The listener says, we are putting on weight, but it is really naive to believe the sugar tax is for the benefit of our health. It's an excuse to get more money because this isn't going to make a difference to someone who overeats and who loves sugar. Mm-hmm. That's the point. If you exactly. like a bottle of Fanta or Coke or Club Orange or whatever, you're going to pay, for the most part, the extra 10 cents. It's not going to make a blind bit of difference mm-hmm. to you. It's the, it's the same when it comes to cigarettes. I don't smoke, um, but the price oh, has gone you're, up. You're disturbingly healthy here. <laughs> you're painting yourself out to be very healthy. <laughs> but the price has been going up for maybe the last 10 years every year, you know, but people continue to buy them. But that, that will always be the case. It's the same with alcohol. If you, if you indulge in something or if you like 
having something, you're always going to pay that extra yeah. extra bit for it, you know? And, and the, the, one of the things, say the average five-year-old, and this is terrifying, the average five-year-old consumes the equivalent of their body weight in sugar in the course of the year. So you've got obesity and diabetes and cavities, all of these things mm-hmm. that are going to come down the line to these yeah. children. How much of a, of a problem is this that mammy and daddy let the kids do that or that the child sees mammy and daddy eating the biscuits, eating the cakes, and therefore thinks it's their entitlement and their right to do yeah. it? And that's a bigger problem than any sugar tax will yeah. solve. Like I, I think it's a bit of both and I don't want to be say bashing on parents and saying that it's all parents' fault but nutrition was never um, a course that was taught in schools. People don't grow up learning about nutrition so you can't exactly blame parents. Parents don't know what to do. You know, I've, I've parents come in to me in, in my office every single day and they're maybe gobsmacked when I talk about sugar or the amount of sugar their kids are having. They just don't realise it, you know, and okay. that's where the education needs to come in. Uh, just to give me something grim to finish up on, if you drank a 500 milliliter bottle of something or other how long mm-hmm. would it take to run that off because you probably have done um, the calculations in your head yeah no I haven't I haven't done good, calculations good. <laughs> but like I wouldn't I'd never classify that I, I hate when I see that that say maybe a litre of, of this classifies as 100 steps or 10,000 steps it doesn't make sense it's just what I always tell people is just to maybe eat 90% real food stuff that comes from the air from the sea from the ground and you won't go too far wrong Dan Sweeney nutritionist and personal trainer uh, thanks very much for coming into the Opera House Thank studio you. here giving us something to think about how much of it is a parental responsibility John here in Cork says lower the tax on sugar free drinks very simple but we know that's not going to happen I'm sure they're going to make the money where they can John 53106 let us know your thoughts this is the right hook the Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Anyway, let's talk about PRSI. The government plans to undertake this survey of self-employed workers to find out if they'd be willing to pay more PRSI in return for greater benefits and what new benefits they would most like to receive from social insurance reforms planned in future budgets. David Fitzsimmons of the group Retail Excellence Ireland, its CEO, in fact, is on the line. Good good evening to you, David. Hi, Jonathan. Um, First of all, the self-employed didn't really get looked after under the PRSI system, so a reform of it is long overdue. Yeah, I suppose uh, the broader point today is that um, well, retail sales are starting, growth rates certainly are starting to stall. It's a very uncertain future we face, and we have to reward and celebrate risk takers and job creators in the Irish economy. And this is the kind of rhetoric the government have kind of come out with um, o- over time. But policy obviously doesn't underpin that view or that statement. And um, while it is a welcome intervention to survey the tax needs of the self-employed. An obvious solution is is to allow for self-employed people to enjoy the comforts uh, that other employees enjoy around social welfare benefits uh, should they become redundant. Um, Yeah, but why historically has that not been the case, that if you try as a business person to employ yourself and possibly others, that in the event that the backside falls out of it, uh, you fall through the same hole? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense, but there's loads of anomalies in government. There's loads of anomalies in our tax system. You know, if you go in and buy a croissant without ch- chocolate on it and the next person comes in and gets one with chocolate, two different fat rates apply, and it's, it's a nonsense. You, you know, if you look at PRSI and, and the need for us to create and retain jobs, last budget, Michael Noonan stood up and he refused to reduce the, the employer's PRSI for low-paid workers, which is fundamentally important for retail, from the 8.5% it is today back to the 42 
it was a year ago. That's costing employers about €1,000 a a year per employee. And it's no wonder that retailers are freezing their labour budgets and that jobs and hours are being lost. So there's there's loads of anomalies. Let's be be careful not to mix the two up. This is is, uh, talking about the self-employed and whether or not benefits should be extended to them, not what they pay to their employees, because their employees are entitled to it. And if you do employ people, them's the breaks. No, the, the, the PRSI rate I'm referring to is the employer's rate that they pay for every employee in their business. So if this government is going to be a jobs government, why double the tax on employment? It's a nonsense. It, it, it's appalling. So things out there are very mixed. Trading is poor. And at the same time, one, there's no protection for risk takers, as we just discussed. And two, the cost of employing people has doubled in our nation. It's, it's, uh, to, to be frank, the level of, I suppose, concern, uh, genuine concerned right around the country and especially in the west of the country uh, amongst our members who employ 280,000 people in this country is huge and for that reason we're setting up constituency committees in Mayo, Donegal, Clare, Kerry, Wexford, Waterford, Carl, all around the country to start communicating one-to-one with TDs, with deputies in the Dáil who when they get to Dublin don't seem to remember the people that voted. Okay, all right, all right, okay, hang on a second now. We have to be very careful here, David, because you, you represent a group and it's important and you listen to them and they tell you things like, you know, it was very good and things are stalling now and we're very worried. We don't want to start a discussion with the department on an important issue like this by playing the poor mouth. We have to be a little bit more mature than that and talk about a reform of the system to include more people and not just a way of employers reducing the bill that they face at the end of every month. That, that, that is exactly it. So the two major PRSI issues that exist in our economy today are, number one, the fact that self-employed people cannot increase their voluntary PRSI contribution and thus enjoy the type of protections that employees enjoy should they become redundant. That's number one. And that's fundamentally important that that is addressed because we want to celebrate entrepreneurship in this country. And you're not going to celebrate entrepreneurship by basically leaving self-employed in such a vulnerable position. So when Leo Varadkar says, I want to find out what new benefits they would most like to receive, such as long-term illness, injury, job seekers, dental treatment benefits, or whatever they would, or whether they would prefer to maintain the status quo. Is there any appetite amongst the the small self-employed groups out there uh, that they want to maintain the status quo where they get nothing like that? Well, I think it would be prudent for Minister Varadkar and others at Covenant to at least allow self-employed people the choice. Okay, so yes, you can contribute to enhanced PRSI and you will get all of these reliefs. Or should you not wish to do so, you don't, but you don't get those reliefs. At least give people the choice to make a determination as to whether they, they want to take a huge risk by not contributing the enhanced PRSI, or are they willing to pay a little bit more every week, and should that rainy day come when they have to close their business, that at least they can go on the dole, provide for their families and for the kids, rather than today, where they're just left cold and dry. It's, it's, it's anomalous. It's, it's, not, it's not good. When you hear of surveys being undertaken, does that fill you with a sense that uh, government is willing to listen to you and at least is trying to open a line of communication? Or do you fear that this is what we do in Ireland very well, which is talk something to death and not actually do anything? 
Yeah, if you look for the past 10 years at any sub- budget submission that's come from us or ISME or IBEC or the Small Firms Association, whatever, it says the same thing over and over again. So the necessity for the survey, I don't think, is there. We've been telling government for years and years and years that this is, this is a key issue and one that should be addressed. So um, I'm pretty sure that self-employed people who respond to the survey will say exactly what we've been saying for the last decade. Yeah, but the problem is that people don't see the need for benefits until they arise. If you've been self-employed to this point, you don't necessarily want your dental benefit or you, you can't envisage a situation where you fail. Yet what we have just gone through in terms of an economic uh, collapse means that we need to make sure that safeguards are in place in the future so that the same doesn't happen to another generation. Of Absolutely. And we want, we want people to, we want to embrace risk takers. I met a retailer, a failed retailer today for a cup of coffee who, who was in, in Ennis and Mayo had a really vibrant business. Obviously, the recession came and, and, and his business went. And he's had an incredibly tough period. He's no doll to, to rely on. He's had to beg, borrow and steal from family and friends. And it's been a, a tumultuous five years, six years for him and his family. God love the poor guy. And, and like any politician looking into his eyes has to realise that today the, 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 the protections for people like that who, who go off, take a risk, put their money and employ people um, and do their very best, but the business doesn't. The business closes not not for their own uh, because yeah. of their own intervention. You know these people need to be protected, and that's that's what I'm saying today, and that's what needs to happen. Listener says, why should self-employed people pay more PRSI if they paid their dues? Surely they're entitled to the same benefits as other people who pay at the same level. Well, you see, the problem is they don't pay PRSI at the moment, so they don't get the same benefits that people pay at the same level. Another listener says, unemployment is one thing, Jonathan, but do you realise that self-employed people get no disability allowance? Should they fail, fall too ill to work. On the same point, do you realise that employed people are entitled to almost 12,000 a year in that circumstance? Again, that comes back to the fact that this isn't a level playing field, David Fitzsimons, that what you have here is one system that's set up to help people who are employed and another system that is set up not to help the employer. Yeah, so today we could all go and work for the public civil service or whatever, and that's fine. But we need private enterprise to thrive, and 90% of private enterprise in Ireland is SME, small little self-employed businesses that sustain local economies in towns and villages around the country. It's, it's, you know, we need to celebrate these people. They're the backbone of our economy. The reason I'm calling you here from Ennis County Clare, the reason that we have some a vibrant Ennis economy is because of self-employed people who've got up off their arses and opened businesses and done the very, very best they can do. And, and it's time now for policy, government policy, to align the benefits that come with employment with those of self-employed. I'm hearing you, and I know I slagged off surveys as being a way to avoid making a decision, but at least Silveracker has come out with this, that he's going to do it. I mean, the fear, of course, I would have is that this government might necessarily be there when the survey comes back. Well, no, and if you look at what came out from the Independent Alliance calling for a minimum wage of €10 Euro when the government is, is appointed a low-pay commission to make it an evidence-based recommendation, it's, it's, it's an absolute nonsense. Uh, hang, so, on a sec- uh, hang on a second. They, they also recommended a $0.10 increase, which I'm presuming you're opposed as well. No, actually, we came out in favour of it. So the low-pay commission was set up to depoliticise the political football that is the minimum wage. They have be- it has been established. It makes a forensic evidence-based um, announcement every year. That announcement, uh, recommendation was given to Mary, Minister Mary Mitchell O'Connor a couple of weeks ago, and yet at the Cabinet table, there are politicians who are undoing the work of the Low Pay Commission and calling for a higher minimum wage. It's, it's, 
It's ludicrous. The government have set up, the cabinet have set up this entity to make a deliberation, and the cabinet are basically questioning that deliberation. It's, um, yeah, probably is best that we get back to a solid government, so an election by the end of the year probably would be a welcome intervention. Uh Okay, and uh, just another list. It says every self-employed person is fully aware of the lack of benefits available when they set out on the route of starting a business. I work 70 hours a week and I get nothing. Uh, I don't get holidays, I don't paid holidays, sick leave, pension or health benefits. I'm happy to pay PRSI to get my benefits should I fail, which I worry about every single day. Will you at least commit, David Fitzsimons? I know you're saying that uh, you're going to send the message clear to, to encourage people to, to take part in this with an open mind uh, about what happens next. If it gets you to that goal where at least those self-employed people have a choice rather than being dictated to. Yeah, that would be ideal. So every person that's self-employed today will say the same thing, just as that texture just said to you, Jonathan. So do we need a, a, a survey cost a process of, of deliberation and consultation? No. It is very clear that some self-employed people, the majority of them probably, want that, those protections. They get up every morning, they feed a family, they do a hard day's work, and they do work 60 to 70 hours a week, and the state currently really is kind of giving them the finger. You know, so let's start celebrating entrepreneurship, reward-taking, um, job creation, but by giving these people the same protections that everyone in employment enjoys. David Fitzsimon, CEO of Retail Excellence Ireland, thank you for joining us on The Right Hook. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Welcome back to The Right Hooker. This is Jonathan Healy. It's National Census Day in Australia tomorrow. And one of the things that has strangely dominated the debate there is something that we touched on in the run-up to our own census, but it's generating a lot more heat. Campaigners in Australia have urged their compatriots to register themselves as Christian so that the country isn't officially declared as a Muslim state. Now, the Australian Atheist Federation has won a campaign there to have an option for no religion move to the top of the census religion question. The concern is that not enough people will click no religion and the dominant religion will, in fact, be Muslim. On the line now is Right Hook regular Father Brendan Purcell, who lives in Australia. Brendan, you're very welcome to the programme. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Thank you. You you must be freezing over there. It's winter. Well, as I said, we get no sympathy for it here, even though it's kind of, at the moment, I'm wearing my anorak in, and I've got these kind of fancy Ugg boots on uh, that I wear when I get very cold here. <laughs> but no people feel sorry for people in Sydney, and I don't think you should be. We get too much good weather to be sorry for it. Yeah, well, we have the sunshine here today, so it, it counteracts it ever so beautiful. slightly. Brendan, religion was identified as, as this hot topic going into the census. Now, we didn't have a no-religion option at the top of our census. It was uh, further down um, and there was people saying we should have options for lapsed Catholics or lapsed Christians or whatever. What kind of debate have you had in Australia on this? Well, I, I didn't make quite a splash as you might think, Jonathan, but it's definitely there. I have my own form in my hand here and the top one is no religion, then Catholic, and they more or less go on the size of the map, like Catholic, Anglican, because Catholics are the biggest single religion. Protestants are about whatever percent. There's something like 36%. Catholics are about 25% but the single biggest group, and that happens in the States as well. So, but in the end of the day, who gives a hooch? <laughs> if someone wants to put down no religions, sure, it's a free world, thanks for the goodness. I actually think, uh, from my own experience of being 
people in Ireland who regard it as atheists or agnostics, often they've taught, it doesn't mean I agree with their conclusions, I doesn't have to, but they've often taught more about the issues of who they are and where they're coming from than many, if you like, many of us who just don't even put the questions to ourselves, you know, so I have the greatest respect for someone who puts in no religion uh, down there, I mean, I wish they were in whatever religion they belong to, but at the same time, they, it is on top, they won that little battle, but it didn't cause as much as much heat as you might think, you know what I mean? Australia, as you know, is it's regarded as one of the more secular countries in the world. They've got something like, the last census they had answering to that question was something like 20-something percent. It was only a few percentages behind the Catholics. You know, the single biggest group after us, if you call us the Catholics, that is, uh, were the no religion. And then there's another group who are, uh, they just said other. And that, that would mean, like, if you think you're a, par- you're a J.D. Knight or something. A, <laughs> a Jedi Knight. Like to fill that yeah. in, you know? <laughs> now, the only thing is, where I'm kind of uncomfortable with this is that there's concern that Australia is going to be officially declared uh, as a state with more Muslims than anybody else. Where well, is that suggestion coming from? The country at the moment, at least in the last census, it was less than half a million. In other words, what are they talking about? It's 2.2, no, it's 370,000 is what I got here for the last, that's about, say, six, seven years ago. That's 2.2%. Now they'd have to do a mighty fast increase of population to get over, uh, to get anything like uh, even a smallish minority. You know, I mean, it's tiny. But does that not give rise to the real reason why you're having this discussion is that you have people within Australian society whose job it is to stir the pot. And by stirring this particular pot, they're creating an anti-Muslim sentiment. Oh yeah, I mean, there's no no question about it. There'll always be. But I mean, let's. I mean, here am I. I've, I've written a book just very recently about suffering and so on. One of the chapters was about terrorism at the very end. I went out of my way to find and bring out all the positive things, all the positive dialogues going on between Islam and that. But there's no doubt you'd still have a little question about. There's an amount of problems coming out of obviously a very extreme version that claimed to be Muslim. The example I was using a few days ago was like my pal who's a he's in Cork himself at the moment now, Ted Collins. He was a chaplain. Father Collins, he was a chaplain to Irish hotel workers in the 70s in England. And every time a bomb was let off, all the poor, kind of very hard working class Irish were made to feel they were to blame. You know what I mean? Mm. And they just took that, you know, it was very tough to shake it off. And I gave the example of even German students that I had for years in UCD, like they'd be coming over. I mean, they would have been born years after Hitler died, but they'd be carrying the burden of being suspected, look what you did. You know what I mean? So I think we've got to be just as careful about how we do that. And obviously, you get a tiny minority here, but they don't have much effect, you know, to be quite honest. Uh, you know, even the woman who was most identified with that, called Pauline Hansen, she's got a party called One Nation, and then that was roundly condemned by pretty well all the churches when it came out first. But she's mellowed now. A bit like, if you think, if I may say so, someone like Ian Paisley. She's actually got four senators, and senators are quite powerful in Australia because they can block the government's programme if they get together. There's loads of independent senators. But nonetheless, she's got mellowed too. I haven't heard any squeak about her, about anti-Islam at all this time. You yeah. know? So I think it's an issue. It'll always be around. The same as you'll always get virulent anti-Catholicism or maybe anti-Protestantism in Ireland. Uh, you know, but it'll always be, thank God, a fairly small minority. The funny thing, though, is of all the questions on the census, you have to fill them all in, except the one on religion. Why are they giving uh, religion a, a buy? Look. 
Uh, I don't. Oh yeah, it says Anne, you're dead right. Actually, you're, you've read the small print. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I'm well, I'm well read on the Australian census. <laughs> so I suppose it allows people who don't want people to know where they're at. Uh, I mean, one of the pro- the biggest problem here has been not the, not about that one, but about the fact that the Australian Census Bureau uh, wants to hold on to all this information for a long, long time. They used to destroy it before. Now they get. I just saw in the paper today 41 million Australian dollars last year from selling information. I've no problem with them doing that, but there are people who've got real problems about privacy. You're putting your name, de- address, religion, all sorts of stuff down here so that they, who knows what government agency or you know, commercial bodies can get hold of that information. So they are worried about the fact that they're storing the information you know, for, for a long time. Yeah, but I mean, that's the kind of thing that you have a discussion about when the census is done. And we, well, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't care less. I mean, if anyone wants to know about it, I mean, what do I care? I'm not really worried about it. Yeah. But I mean, there are people who are very sensitive and sometimes they've thought it through uh, that there's certain dangers about governments knowing. I mean, the obvious example, the one that I think anyone would think of if you talk back a bit, was the, the fact that, you know, IBM, they were a great seller of early, early, early machinery, census machinery stuff to the Nazis, for example. So that was one of the ways that the the horror story of the whole Nazi government was able to be so efficient and how later on they had so much good figures on, for example, Jewish people and the people who wouldn't cooperate, like the Belgians and the Romanians, or the, no, the Romanians, the Bulgarians, different countries wouldn't cooperate. But whenever they did, having your number and your religion marked down could be, you know, was at least in, in, in the 30s and 40s in, in Europe, a nightmare for certain people. So I read there is a little bit of a problem about governments having too much information. Yes, there is. But is there not as big a problem with Cam- campaigns that are set up to try and get people to tick certain boxes. The whole point of the census is that you do it freely. If you're coming under pressure to click the no religion box as opposed to you might be more comfortable as as a lapsed Catholic ticking the Catholic box. I mean, no one should tell anyone what to do when it comes into fitting the census. Well, I, mean, that, I think that is the exact point there, Jonathan. That particular one, because the people are more sensitive about their religious area than any other one, that is, as you said, and rightly so, the only one that's actually marked option. So I think it allows, but most people are going to fill it in. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i a compulsive form filler in. I'm an incredibly obedient citizen. I fill in all the boxes. You know what I mean? I think most people just do that. Who cares less, you know? So it just gives... But if you are worried and you don't want them to know, you don't even have to put down other or no religion or mention they mention a whole pile of religions in front of me here you don't have to put any of them down so in that sense uh, you know you don't have to do it and you leave it no one knows that information Brendan how much has the Minute story been resonating on on your side of the globe obviously as a Catholic priest you'll have been paying attention to it I know you didn't go to Minute but is there much discussion amongst the Catholic community about what's been going on I or alleged to have been going only on the really good Catholic watchers who are a tiny percentage obviously some clergy would notice it it hasn't got even a line. I mean, the street papers that I see in Sydney, Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian and the Sydney, uh, the Daily Telegraph, it hasn't got even a line in any of them. Uh, so it hasn't, it just hasn't figured over here. But obviously it's very concerning and I mean, as you can see, there are differences among Irish bishops what to do. My own, I just was reading today in the Indo, just because I get it online here, uh, how Dermot Martin was very much in favour of, you know, smaller communities. And I know Jesuits did that in Dublin for years and I think different uh, sisters congregations have tried that out. So my own experience in the Irish College was, for example, my year, we're meeting together next uh, February, we're ordained uh, nine of us in the class. That, that's how small our classes were. But none of the guys left, and I'm not saying guys who left were better or worse, often some of the really best guys did leave. But none of ours left. One of the reasons, I think, was it was more like a family there. Everyone was friendly, we all knew each other, whereas if you're in a big, big seminary, you, you tend to be more a part of a crowd. And so I just think, if I was certainly, I would 
agree with, the, with my own Archbishop there, you know, smaller groups, maybe to go to theology in Maynooth, study that, and then come mm. back and live in maybe with a parish priest or a couple of guys in a parish, train together or something like that. But not the big, huge kind of semi-reformatory regimes that we were in. Certainly Slanlis in those days was the sort of place you were glad to shake your feet out of and uh, get out of. As a Catholic priest, were you surprised that someone like Archbishop Dermot Martin was talking about suggestions or suggesting that some people in Maynooth were on Grindr, this gay dating website. And you can understand his discomfort if they were, because these were men that were supposed to be taking a vow of celibacy. Instead, they weren't. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you can't, I mean, that, that's another separate debate, but certainly there's absolutely no doubt about it. There's no place, <laughs> if someone is actually seriously practicing gay and so on, it's one thing if he might have been gay some time ago and he's given that up, etc. But I really think it's be hypocritical in the extreme uh, for such a person to be standing up in public and basically you'd have to be defending Catholic teaching on, on the whole yeah. sexual, which is a difficult area, as the Archbishop said. But if he's not prepared to stand for himself, he has to keep his mouth shut, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I really think it's, it's, it's it would be disastrous. If those rumours are true, it is totally disastrous for the individuals involved because leave out the question of the Catholic Church, but what about the guy himself? Uh, you know, there's a, divi- there's a split within him. He's going to publicly take one line and yet as a trainee, he's already going in another direction. Where on earth is that going to lead him? Is, is, it, not, is it not, I suppose, a way of forcing everybody to accept that there are gay men in the Catholic Church. And and the, I suppose the vow of celibacy, which everybody signs up to, some people will have more of a difficulty agreeing to that than others. They don't have to necessarily be involved in a gay relationship. But at the same time, if these were any other students in Maynooth who were on Grinder, it wouldn't have been an issue. It's an issue because they're training to be priests. Absolutely. And then, I mean, Grinder presumably is a gay dating thing. So we're not talking about even guys who may have lapsed in this way or that way. It's guys who are seriously practicing or wish to practice in that way. And again, without getting into the debate about rights and wrongs, although as a Catholic, I have to say I can't see it as a good lifestyle. Uh, nonetheless, you'd have to say, look, you've got to avoid hypocrisy. The very, I mean, let's say a good pagan like Socrates, whom I taught his stuff for years, for 30-something years in UCD, like, he was, his big point is like, know yourself, be in t- be in touch with yourself, you know, live the truth that, that you're actually, speak the truth that you're actually living. And I mean, that's a requirement, you know, that's even a pre-Christian issue, you know what I mean? So that someone would be claiming to stand for something and yet at the same time doing the exact opposite. He and he, she may have a fall. I might have a fall. Any of us can have a fall. You pick yourself up again. But actually having a lifestyle that's in sheer contradiction with that, it seems to me, this is a psychological, apart from moral, it's a psychological disaster for that guy. Okay. Father Brendan Purser, we'll leave you going back to share in your raincoat over in Sydney. (laughs) Pleasure talking to you. Bye now, thank you. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie You're listening to The Right Hook with Jonathan Healy. Now, a recent study has found that children are far less active during the summer months that's causing a noticeable drop in their fitness levels. On the line, Ray Silk, a secondary school teacher, a former Galway footballer and someone who does a lot of coaching of young kids. Ray Silk, good evening. Good evening, Jonathan. Is this something you've witnessed, that you you send them out at the end of the school term, reasonably fit, and they're coming back in worse off? Yeah, I think it most definitely happens. that, And the reasons are, I suppose, Jonathan, that during the summer there isn't as much of a routine. Uh, I think the electronic devices have gone way too far 
and some of the inactivity that goes on, maybe parents are at work and therefore uh, children might be with a, uh, left, left to their own devices, a, or alternatively they might be with grandparents who mightn't have the physical, act, have the physical energy to get out and about, or with childminders. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's quite noticeable sometimes in April and May you might have coached up a team and they'd be in good shape. And then come in September, they mightn't be quite as fit or mightn't have the levels. And maybe more so at national school level, I think, because a lot of clubs would keep things going over the summer. And I suppose it's a big issue. Uh, you know, there's 400 children in that survey in 14 different schools. And it looked like a 15% reduction in physical uh, fitness over the summer months. Yeah, and, and to be fair, this is a British survey and the British summer break is about two weeks shorter than the Irish summer break. So our kids are probably worse off. Absolutely. And look, I think what we need to focus on here, I suppose, is solutions. And I think a few, I have four young children and they're all relatively healthy, thankfully, and they're out and about. But we try and unplug the Wi-Fi, I think, is a very simple one. I think maybe in the evening, just plug that thing out, because if they're on their iPad, if they're on the laptop or the mobile phone, they're not going to engage in the physical activity as much. And also the TV is a big... The, 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 the babysitter in the corner, you know, maybe switch it off from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. There's no TV because if there's a TV, they're not going to get out and about. And the biggest thing, really, Jonathan, of all, is I think we all, and I include myself and Jonathan Healy in this, we need to show a good personal example. Get out yourself. The first six inches are the hardest part. Get off the couch. Get out for a walk. Bring the kid with you. And when they see that kind of thing going on on an ongoing basis, and I'm talking from the cradle to the grave, like a long lifelong activity, then they'll engage in it, find something they enjoy, whether that's hockey or camogie or tiddlywinks or whatever your thing is, but if they enjoy it and if you show a good example for your children, I think they'll follow that because one stat that shocked me in the survey, this was in the, in the Telegraph, the iPad generation, they're calling them, Jonathan, they're saying mm-hmm. one in ten, ten percent of toddlers are, are deemed unactive or unactive enough not to be considered healthy. Now, that is some stat for parents driving home this evening who love their children more than anything else, and yet one in ten in England, I know it's England, but how far are we from that? One in ten aren't deemed active yeah. enough to be considered healthy. There, there is a problem in, in houses, the length and breadth of the country, and it, it is a phenomenon that is creeping in, and it's YouTube. You and I grew up, Ray, in two-channel land. Maybe two-channel land might have been a stretch, even the one channel, the other one might have had a clock on for large parts of the day. So we didn't have much to watch. Now they've got a plethora of channels and they don't want to watch the 57 channels with nothing on. They want to watch YouTube. There's a guy, I don't know if you've experienced him in your household, Dan DTM or TDM or whatever he is, who sits there in his attic playing computer games, commentating on it, and he is absolutely the most popular character on on the iPad in our house. It's mind-numbing stuff, yet the kids are getting sucked into it. Yeah, well, look, I suppose, going back to my previous point, I think the Wi-Fi does need to be switched off. Now, you're going to maybe get a little bit of say, How popular are you if you turn off the Wi-Fi? Yeah, I know, but it's not a popularity contest. The, the, The negative stuff for lack of activity, and I've read it and written it quite here, is for, for young people, particularly uh, children, like, you start as you mean to go on, physical development is down, attention span is down, academic performance is down, and the big startling one is that you've shortened lives. So, 
you know, if if you if uh, if if it's on in your house, Jonathan, and I, you know, I'm not being the PC parent here or anything, but if it's on all the time, well, then they're going to stay, they're going to get engaged in it, like. But we, and I know myself, you come up, you get up in the morning. I'm a school teacher, so you're off, whatever. My wife is at work, so I have the four at home. You come down in the morning, the TV is on. You have to make a conscious effort by half nine or ten o'clock. That TV just has to be switched off. I don't care what's on it, switch it off and try and get them out and about because if you don't show that example, the six, we have two six-year-olds or the nine-year-old, they're definitely not, they're going to stay watching the Olympics, which is ironic, really. Yeah. They're sitting and watching the Olympics, and it's a beautiful day. You have to try and get that out. Now, I'm 45. I don't, I don't, want, I don't want to know what age you are. but well, I'm, when, I'm five when, years younger than you. I'm proudly younger than you. Good. Excellent. Well, when, in, in, when I went to national school in the late 70s and early 80s, it was a mile to my local national school in Belclare. I We walked, not necessarily by, because we had to, but because our parents' attitude was, well, it's good for you, and walk that mile and walk that mile home. And one other thing, even going back to schools, and every parent, the length and the breadth of the nation that's listened to the right hook this evening will know this. Some parents want to bring their Johnny or Mary, you think they're going to bring them into the school, in, into the class hall with them. What's wrong with stopping a half an hour Oh, 20 minutes away from the schoolyard, if possible. Ah, but Ray, you know what's wrong and with that. let them walk. Yeah, no, great idea. And, and nothing will happen to them. But we are now in a culture and a society that expects the worst to happen all the time. And, and you know, for some reason, we think that if we don't drop the child to the school gate, they, they might fall foul of, of, of some sinister character or the, an accident might happen and it, it weighs on the parent's mind. That's why little Johnny gets dropped to the gate more than anything else. Yeah, well, we, you just can't have it everywhere. Like, you, you, you can coordinate that, get on your, here we go again, get on your WhatsApp or whatever with a few parents and get four or five to get the high visits out and walk along. I accept things can happen, but if you have a group of five or six kids in high-vis jackets walking to school at 20 to 9 or half 8 in the morning, you know, you have, you have to engage in a certain amount of independent thinking as well and coordinate it. I know people are working, don't get me wrong, but, you know, we, if, if, we, if we don't want this study to be replicated in Ireland and if we don't want it, not just during the summer, if we don't want a replication of this on an ongoing basis, well, then we have choices to make. And the opportunity cost for having healthy kids is maybe you, you coordinate your work or your flexi time. But if the, if the parent, and I include myself in this, if the parent isn't showing good example, it's absolutely lunacy to assume that the child is going to do it. And there's a load of st- studies to prove that if you want your children to read, they need to see you reading. And a big thing, I have been in houses, I'm sure you have as well, we used to say, talk to the hand because the face ain't yeah. listening. Now parents, are, a lot of their children are talking at the back of a mobile phone. So we, our eldest, she's 13, we give her a mobile phone this year. But there's a rule, and we all try and do it, all mobiles are switched off at half eight or nine. Now, you're not Dennis O'Brien, we're not uh, Donald Trump, we're not chief executives of massive organizations, if you switch off the bloody mobile phone, there is an off button on it, well, then people won't be engaging it. And get out and go for a little walk. It doesn't cost anything. Now, I know uh, swimming camps and horse riding camps and the cool camps all cost money, but going for a 20-minute walk doesn't cost anything, and you engage better with your child for doing that. So the survey has proved that during the summer this uh, this fitness level goes down considerably. And my point to Jonathan Healy and the right hook is if parents really, really want this not to happen to Ireland, and if we don't on an ongoing basis, get off your yep. boats, switch off the TV, switch off the Wi-Fi, get your high-vis jacket and go for a walk. You know, you're going to have people who are listening to this, Ray, who say, that's grand. I'd love nothing more than to go out and play tennis with the kids or go for the big long walk or do something to energise them. But... 
At the same time, look at the Irish weather. Today, yes, it's a lovely sunny evening, but a lot of the time it's raining. And you've got three kids who are screaming or two kids who are screaming inside and you're trying to make the dinner and you're trying to catch up on your work and everything else that's going on. It is easier sometimes to give in than it is to do the right thing. And you have to say that people can be forgiven for that in some ways. Absolutely. But the point that the report makes, and this is why I got the call off you guys, is that there's an inactivity pandemic in the UK. We have massive obesity issues in Ireland as well. Many schools, I know many, many schools in second level who do not have um, timetabled PE in fifth year and leaving cert. So we have a massive problem. So, of course, it's lash and rain. Uh, The husband comes home from work. The wife has had a tough day as well. It's very, very difficult. But what are our choices here, particularly during the summer months? Like... The weather isn't that bad all the time. Get a bloomin', go into Port West, have a 30% sale on or whatever, and get some wet gear. But all I'm saying is 15 <laughs> minutes. I'm not talking an hour and a half. Yeah. I loved your... Uh, <laughs> You're out playing tennis. Hang on a second. I was brought up. Can I tell you something? The reason I did it was Wimbledon was on. And for me, that was the traditional start of the disastrous Irish summer. And I decided this year, the first thing I was going to do was go out and I cut, using the lawnmower, a tennis court. Now, I've never done anything this dramatic in all of my life. And everyone looked at it going, he's after making a complete mess of the grass. But that tennis court has gotten more use than anything else in my garden this summer, I can tell you. Yeah, a big mistake we made when we built is we put a window in all the sides of the house. Like, you know, it's hard to, a gable wall. I, I play, like you said, I played with Galway, I played with my club. But I spent many, many hours out there kicking the ball off the gable end of the wall. If, you know, we say in coaching that if it's well organised and enjoy it, they will come. And if, if the parent can, and OK, I'll put in can now, if the parent can get out and show a little bit of example or bring that child for a 20-minute walk or whatever. It's not easy if you're working in a multinational or whatever, you're working 8 till 6 or 8 till 7, you're coming home late. But if, if the child doesn't, if the, if the child who you love more than anything doesn't get a good personal example, do you see my point? Absolutely. If they don't get an example from you, well, then they're going to go down a path that you don't want them to do it. And I'll go back to the solutions. Uh, personal example, find something to enjoy. And one other one that is very, very strong in all the research I've seen is trying to get your children to go to bed early. A big, and we find it very, very difficult sometimes, but if you can get your kid down earlier, their energy levels the next day are far superior, far, far superior. And then they might have the, uh, the physical want to do it, but if they're tired, they won't. And I'll go back to the negatives from, from lack of exercise for the listeners. Listen to this. Uh, lack of physical, poor physical development of your child, a poor attention span. I'm talking about, as, as a teacher, you can see this as well, poor academic performance and long-term shortened lives and health issues. So if we all profess to care most about our children, well, then we need to try and, and, and change it around. And we talk about lifelong learning, yeah. and then we talk about lifelong activity. And in the UK, they have an interesting initiative, and I'll, I'll just bring it back to the department for a second. It's called Drop the Pencils and Let's Go. And in national schools, they try and get the kids out every single day for a 15 to 20-minute walk. They pack in the books and they go for the walk. Now, in, in Ireland, we have an initiative called Stop and Read, where you dro- drop the books and read. But in national schools, because it's more difficult in secondary because there's the exam focus and, you know, you might have six or 700 kids in a, in, in a school, but if any national school principal or board of management people are listening, it's not a bad idea that they would stop as well and go out for a 15, 20-minute walk every, uh, most days of the week anyway, because that's where people get... The habit form that you form the habit there that could stick you for last you for a lifelong a, a lifetime. Okay. And putting on my economics hat because I, I, I teach economics, yes. Jonathan. 
the, the cost-benefit analysis of having a healthy, fit population is massive compared to the cost of trying to yep. uh, solve the problem subsequently. Well, we're all going to have to deal with diabetes if we sit in our backsides much longer. Uh, Ray, I presume you didn't take a holiday in Tipperary this year, did you? No, unfortunately, unfortunately, as per the Irish weather, we managed to get away for two weeks, but we got well, well beaten, and on Sunday now we'll be playing them in the minor at, at two o'clock, I think, and then the seniors, so we hope to get some retribution with the small ball. Ray Silk, I'll go home and tell my children that you told me to unplug the Wi-Fi and see what reaction I get. And, and, and another thing where we have a chase most days is hide the remote control. I'm not talking about teenagers like, but with seven or eight or ten, nine, ten years, the TV's broken. I can't find the control. Yeah, come here. They're, they're more likely to hide it on me, Ray, than the other way around. We leave it there. Ray Silk, secondary school teacher and, of course, someone very heavily involved in the coaching of kids. Thanks for talking to us, Ray. A pleasure.